Would you open up your Bibles, please, this morning to the book of John, Gospel of John, in chapter 5. And just to bring you up to speed as you're getting there, just to refresh for most of us, um, last week we looked at the start of a defense that Jesus is making before his opponents, the religious authorities here in this passage called the Jews, who made some really serious accusations about him, namely that he did not have the authority to break their idea of the Sabbath and that he absolutely did not have the authority to make himself equal with God, as verse 18 says, by calling God his own father. So these two charges even though the Jews aren't acting on them yet, they become the grounds that the Jews use to seek to put him to death. Well, and the reality is it's because God didn't repent of being God in the flesh. And last week, Jesus has presented the case that, oh yes, he is God's son and does have authority to do what he's doing and claim what he's claiming. And this week, Jesus brings into the courtroom, so to speak, his witnesses to testify of him and of his father. So if you've gotten there, would you please stand as we read John chapter 5, beginning in verse 30. I'm going to grab a drink of water. <clears throat> chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus speaking, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning light and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You may have a seat. Now, right at the outset of this portion, of the, as he continues his defense, he points out that what he's doing is not done in a vacuum. He says, I can do nothing on my own. 
As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's so totally aligned with his father's desires and plan that anything he's done or is going to do is not Jesus parading his own show. He also knows the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. He's his God who inspired it after all. And so he says what they would very much agree. Verse 31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. In Jewish law, the law of Moses, hopefully you know this, it takes two or three witnesses to establish, to give credence to someone's testimony. And those witnesses have to be reliable. So what does Jesus do? Well, he gives them five. Two is not good enough. Three is not good enough. Five. And so here's where we're going today. If the witnesses point to Jesus, come to Jesus. So first, the prophets testify of Jesus. (laughs) If you've read the Bible, throughout Israel's history, Israel had a love-hate relationship with the prophets. They loved that, the idea that God was speaking with them, that God had chosen them as, as a people. Through the prophets, God, God brought his law, his promises, anointed the kings, they served as counselors, they laid out his plan of redemption. But man, did Israel drag their heels about what God said. Over and over, the people rebelled. The people didn't believe. The people committed idolatry. The people grumbled against God and his prophets. And they killed many of them. But here, in this text, in the first century, these Jews thought they were above all that. Truth is, we're more like the grumbly nation of Israel than we'd like to admit. That we think we've, we've risen above it. And these Jews believe that they're, they're going to be the generation that heeded the prophets. So Jesus challenges, challenges their boasting. He says, basically, if you believe the prophets, if you really believe the prophets, you will believe me. And so Jesus gives these authorities the witness of, the. actually it's really cool, the first prophet that Israel was given and the last prophet of the, Old Test, of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. He gives them John the Baptist and Moses. Jesus has just challenged them implicitly that all of the prophets, from Moses to John, that all of them testify about Jesus. And if they believe those prophets, they will believe Jesus. So Jesus tells them um, in verse 33 he says he tells them to remember how they went and questioned John you sent to John and how John back in chapter 1 verses 19 through 34 he said he basically had this inter- interaction with him where they're asking him who are you and he says I'm not the Christ and he ends that section with he says he says I'm not the Christ but look over there the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world And he also said, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. 
Jesus says that John has borne witness to the truth. John's not making up, not making up what he's what he's saying, what he sees, what he knows. And then in verse 5, Jesus tells them to remind them, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And him saying that is actually interesting, is that it seems the Jewish authorities actually liked John to some extent. And Jesus is telling them, if John points to me, whom you rejoiced in his light for a while, come to me. And as one commentator pointed out, and as Linda showed here, a lamp does not light itself. His light that was burning and shining was from the one who, as the the beginning of this book says, is the light of men that shines in the darkness. Who's that? That's Jesus. And we have to see... And so he said he brings this up as as a witness for them to come to him. And we have to make that very clear right at this outset because Jesus is going to say in this passage and he's going to say throughout the rest of the book some very very bold statements that might shock us a bit. But we have to understand why he's bringing it why he's bringing these these witnesses forward. Verse 34, he says to his opponents, to those who currently despise him and are grumbling about him, he says to them, I say these things so that you may be saved. Let's remember this now. And Every time we see Jesus interacting with those who oppose him, he's not after their condemnation. He's after their salvation. God our Savior, as 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 says, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And we, the church, who believe Jesus Christ and are sent by him as his church into the world, we bring a message not of condemnation. We bring a message, the same message, of salvation. And we should seek to have the same desire as our Lord Jesus, that what we say, whether it's encouragement, affirmation, even rebuke or correction, warning, pleading, proclaiming, and on and on, that our words and actions would bring the same message of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he get, brings John as, the, as the, the last prophet. And then we're jumping down to verse 45. We're moving in this text like an arrow from the outer points all the way to the sharp tip in the middle. So here's that, here, at the, here at the other outer point, Jesus brings the other prophetic witness. And he goes for the jugular for them here. Because John may have been the, the cool prophet of the day, but no prophet had clout for these religious authorities like Moses did. And so Jesus says, verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. See, again, Jesus is not out for condemnation. He's not out for condemnation. He doesn't need to condemn. He says, there is one who accuses you. And when we hear that kind of thing, we often think, oh, is it Satan? No, 
It's not Satan. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is rocking their foundations. They were supposed to listen to John, but they didn't, thinking they could rely on Moses and his laws. But Jesus sweeps that rug out from under them and exposes their idol, Moses. Moses, an idol? On whom you have set your hope. That's what idols are. Anything that we set our hope on that's not Jesus. What can that be for us? Calvin said the heart is a factory that keeps producing idols. That can be anything. It can be a stimulus check. It could be our family. It could be our kids doing great to vindicate our parenting. Or it could be even more religious. We follow our favorite Bible teacher and we gauge every other voice against his or hers. Or we evaluate every other Bible translation based off of ours. Or we think we've got a better bead on grace than other people. Or we've got a better bead on obedience than other people. Jesus says to this so that they might be saved. And for us who do believe, but we struggle with these things, let us repent. Let's turn away from that nonsense. Why are those things there? Why are we given Bible teachers? Why are we given Bible translations? Why are we given family? Why are we given kids that at times do great? Why are we given stimulus checks? Well, aside from a whole other bunch of reasons, they're supposed to point to Jesus and his grace, not to ourselves. So if the witnesses point to Jesus, don't settle for the witnesses. Come to Jesus. Moses points to Jesus. And Jesus says, if you really, really, be- if you actually believed Moses, you'd believe me. Well, they don't believe Jesus, so they don't really believe Moses. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And we'll come back here a little bit later, but I'll quote one example for the sake of time and offer an encouragement and a challenge here. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, which Moses wrote. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Sounds like Jesus. And for thousands of years, Christians have rightly understood that that passage in Deuteronomy refers to Jesus. And it's not only that verse. Jesus is all over the first five books of the Bible which are attributed to Moses. So let me do a show of hands. Anybody here a little intimidated by reading the first five books of Moses? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Sometimes they're frankly really hard to read and really hard to keep reading. But there might also be some reasons we don't want to go there because we've been told by otherwise decent Christian teachers that aside from the creation story, the rainbow, and that Charlton Heston scene in Exodus, they're irrelevant for the Christian faith. 
It's all law and no gospel, they say. And Jesus here is saying, no, not true at all. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of what? Law? He wrote of me! Yes, there's law in there, but it points to Jesus. They proclaim him. So I challenge you, church, pick up your Bible. You don't have to do it right now, but pick up your Bible and do three things. One, pray that Jesus would reveal himself to you in what you read in those first five books. And then open your eyes and open your Bible and prepare to be amazed. He has been there all along and it's about him. If the prophets point to Jesus, come to Jesus. The prophets testify of Jesus, but Jesus said, while talking about John, verse 34, not that the testimony I receive is from man. What does he mean by that? Jesus doesn't really need John's validation for his ministry, for who he really is. In fact, Jesus says in verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Actually, John's testimony is dependent on this greater testimony. Moses' testimony is dependent upon this greater testimony. So number two, God himself, his glory and his works, testify of Jesus. Verse 36, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So first, the works. When we look at the ministry of Jesus, when we look at what he said, he is doing and saying what no human being can do. What, and saying what no human being can legitimately say if they're not God. And what are the authorities doing? They're denying the source. In fact, in John 15, verse 24, Jesus tells his disciples, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But here in this passage, he seeks to persuade them anyway. Remember, this defense passage where he's speaking to the Jews comes just after healing a man who had been lame for 38 years. He's restored to full health just by Jesus saying, rise, take up your bed, and walk. There's no medication, no surgery, no physical therapy. And there are other works, which we have already studied, turning water to wine, cleansing the temple, healing the official son, that all point to who he is. And Jesus says early in his defense that he is being given even greater works so that they will be amazed. And that includes what no other person can do, willingly lay down his innocent life by having himself crucified on a cross to pay the infinite debt that you and I owe to God for our sinning against him. If the works point to Jesus, come to Jesus. 
And then there is God himself, because these works are given by the Father who sent him. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. So the question is, how does the Father bear witness? Well, you can, one way is you can look at examples such like Matthew 3, verse 17, Mark 1, 11, Luke 3, 22, when Jesus was baptized and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. But we also must remember, who is the father? He's God. The father is God. And Though all the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are equal, they're all one God, there does seem to be a sense in the Scripture in which God the Father is given a lead status, if you, if you will. Basically, God is fully God and will always do things for his glory. And for this passage, that means that everything God has revealed about himself whether that's in creation or in his spoken revelation, which we will get to even later, bears witness that he has sent Jesus. In fact, (laughs) and this is where it gets even more cool, Jesus' very presence, his works, his message, including what he's saying, the words he's saying in this passage, are the witness of the Father. Did you catch that? I mean, think about it. If Jesus is truly submitting to his Father's will, as he says he is, and if he comes in his Father's name, as he says in verse 43, not his own, then he is really doing what John verse 118 says about him. No one has ever seen God. The only God, who is Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And actually later when the disciple Philip asks Jesus in John 14, Philip asks, show us the Father. And Jesus answered him, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus is the witness of the Father who is bearing witness that yes, Jesus is his Son and does have the authority to do the work of salvation. Now in Israel's history, all sorts of false Christs had come along, especially during the Roman occupation. And they all came in their own name, in their own authority, seeking their own glory. And even these Jews, these Jewish authorities, and by and let's just make clear, the Jewish authorities here are by no means the only people on the planet in the history who have ever done this. Even the Jewish authorities here are in their own authority, seeking praise, glory from one another. And Jesus tells them that the one, that he's the one who has not come in his own name, but in the name of the Father, not seeking his own glory, but seeking the glory of the Father, as a true Jew should be. And as you and I should be instead of, instead of seeking the praise of people. And they respond like, no way. You're a Sabbath breaker and you're making yourself equal with God. You are after your own glory. <laughs> That's a lie. And it's hypocrisy. 
You see, in saying that Jesus is making himself equal with God in verse 18 of chapter 5, and then Jesus pointing out that they are not seeking God to be praised, nor are they seeking God's commendation, him saying that they're doing what is good, but they're instead seeking praise from one another. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying to them, you are making yourselves equal with God. And anyone who tries to make himself or herself equal with God, anyone trying to be their own savior, anyone trying to be their own Lord, their own king or queen of their lives, their own priest, is a person who will not come to Jesus. And Jesus says, when you receive glory from one another, basically receive worship, receive praise, flattery, and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. There's only one God. What does he say? He says, how can you believe? How can you? You can't. But if you hear his voice and behold his Son, the Father testifying that Jesus is his Son, the way of salvation, you can. You can come to him. If the Father, the works, and the glory point to Jesus, come to Jesus. Now there is one part of God the Father's testimony of Jesus that we need to focus in on. And here's the, sh the sharp point of the arrow. Everything that God has revealed, everything that God has done has come to us through speech, through his voice. Jesus is called the Logos, the Word of God. God spoke and the world was made. God spoke and Israel was made into a nation, his nation. God spoke and prophets proclaimed his word to the people. Thus says the Lord, God spoke through human authors, and we are given this book. And in the center of his witnesses that Jesus presents, that they would be saved, Jesus points to the Jewish authorities, points to the, points to the Jewish authorities and us to what they would have held very dear. And for us today, who hold, who rightly should hold a high, very high view of Scripture, we would say similarly. We hold it very dear. But what is it for? Well, if the witnesses point to Jesus, I've said it enough, somebody should be able to say it. Come on. If the witnesses point to Jesus, come on, yell it, it's okay, don't be embarrassed, we're a small number. Yes, come to Jesus. I've got to work on you guys. All right. Number three, the word of God testifies of Jesus. Jesus says to them in verse 38, after telling them that he's 
Okay, his father's voice, you've never heard his form, you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What did, the old, what did the scriptures mean for the Jews? And when he says scriptures here, they had the Old Testament at this point. They did not have the New Testament that we have, that we call, that are, that are also scriptures. What did they mean for the Jews? Well, actually, it means, seems to be everything and more. So the Old Testament itself says in Leviticus 18, verse 5, You shall therefore keep my statutes, the Lord speaking, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And in, oral, in the Jewish oral tradition called the Mishnah, they were told that the more scripture you had under your belt, so to speak, the more secure in eternal life you would be. So the Jews read and heard this, and what was their solution? Study the scriptures so well in their minds that they would be good law keepers, thinking that in them they had eternal life, that they would be able to justify themselves before God and have eternal life on their own. Okay, before we ask the easy question, let's ask the hard question. What's right about that picture? You'll notice Jesus does not rebuke these guys for searching the scriptures. In fact, given that the scriptures testify about Jesus, if we want to know Jesus, we should very much want to search the scriptures. Do we not want to know what God has said about himself? The scriptures testify of me. Let's open the book and read and hear him then. It's here. Jesus tells them, you search the scriptures, good thing. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. So what do you think, good or bad? Well, it depends. <laughs> they were looking for eternal life. Okay, good thing. Eternity has been set in the hearts of man, as Ecclesiastes says. And the way to eternal life is revealed in the scriptures. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what does it reveal? And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. And in verse 46, he says, Moses wrote of me that the way to eternal life is in God who shows mercy. And that he, not they, not us, is this story's hero, is our life's hero, our life's, our life's rescuer, and that in their Old Testament scriptures and in our Old Testament, it shows that there would be one who comes as the Christ, the true King of Israel, who is God himself, the God who works for them and gives them eternal life in his Son. You search the scriptures, good thing, because you think that in them you have eternal life. Depends. And it is they that bear witness about me, great thing. Yet, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now the question, what's wrong with the picture? Well, 
the prosecution's case is over and they won't give the gavel back to the judge. It's the same as every other witness. They didn't want to go to the person to, the, to whom the witnesses pointed. They did not believe it. They may have even said that Scripture points to a Messiah. It seems that they were looking for one because that's the way they go to John. But if that Messiah, if that Christ, was not going to justify their hardness of heart and all their supposed good deeds in the name of law-keeping, they determined that they would not humble themselves before him and ask for mercy and receive his peace, his life, to which the scriptures pointed. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, the scripture is not given to us for us to clean up our lives. It's not ultimately given to us as a roadmap of life that bypasses humble, repenting faith in Jesus to where at some point we can move away from depending on Jesus. That's not how God designed salvation. That's not how God designed the universe to operate. (laughs) And this can easily creep into our churches. And maybe for you, maybe you've thought similarly. I think at some point I certainly have. Basically, if I know enough Bible to do the right thing, that is be a moral person, then I'll be free from my guilt of not being able, not being a moral person. You know what that is? That's trying to find eternal life in the scriptures, not in Jesus. And it's slavery. And you know it's slavery. Or here's another way. We will extract moral principles and self-help principles from the scriptures and then set them above Jesus. Classic example. You're all familiar with the story of David and Goliath, right? Well, Goliath is this huge giant that comes to oppose the Philistine armies, or comes to oppose the Israelite armies, and Israel is all scared. And Moses, and sorry, Moses, David, a little shepherd boy, comes out with a sling and five smooth stones, takes one, puts it in there, and throws it, hits. Goliath in the forehead and he drops dead and the Philistines flee. Well, I didn't tell you the whole story there, did I? Because many churches, many authors, even seminaries that train pastors, I'm sad to say, and perhaps you and I certainly have, believe that we need to hear that what we, what we need to hear from the story of David and Goliath is that if we have enough faith, God will help us overcome our giants in our lives. We've just got to go out there with our sling and God will do his part and we can be like David. Well, is that what the story is really about? Now, what I just said, there is some principal truth to that. In trusting God, he will lead us through the valley of the shadow of death and help us overcome obstacles in life. 
But David didn't go out there for his own glory. And Goliath wasn't out there just because of the Israelite army. Goliath was mocking the name of the living God. And David said, you come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts. See, when God does his part, it's the whole thing. And it's always so that we would not focus on ourselves, but we would be worshiping him. We would be looking to him, believing him, not the strength of our faith or how well we use the sling in our hands. The biggest reason, according to Jesus, that the story of David and Goliath is in the scriptures is that David, the man after God's own heart, points to the true king, the Lord Jesus, who in weakness comes seeking not his own will, but in the name of the Lord of hosts, will defeat every enemy that rejects the name of God Almighty by going to the cross to glorify His name and to rescue God's people. It's about Jesus. And it is told so that we would trust Him. If the witnesses point to Jesus, come to Jesus. Well, that brings the big question, doesn't it? Many of us know it. How do we come to Jesus then? He's not physically here like he was in chapter 5 when this was going on. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, has ascended back into heaven as our King and High Priest who will come back the way he left. How do we come to him then in the 21st century? Jesus in this passage shows us how. It's the same way. It's the same way for everyone. Believe the one whom the Father has sent. Believe the one proclaimed and wrote about by the prophets. Believe the one who came not in his own name but the Father's. Believe the one who spoke these words which perfectly revealed the Father's testimony. Believe him of whom this whole book is written. Believe him who has eternal life, who is life in himself. Believe him who loved these guys enough to bring witnesses to the table that they would be saved. Believe him who went to the cross so that you could believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you can have life in his name. 